comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verses 30 through 33. The apostles gathered around Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. He said to them, Come away to a deserted place by yourselves and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no time even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a deserted place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they hurried there on foot from all the towns and arrived ahead of them. The word of God for the people of God. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Mark chapter 6 is an interesting chapter. It's one of the chapters in the Bible that I think gives us a nice glimpse into Jesus' humanity. It begins with Jesus returning to his hometown where he does some teaching. People are surprised by what he's saying, questioning, isn't that Mary and Joseph's son? Isn't, Isn't he the son of the carpenter? Who does he think he is saying these things? Jesus points out that a prophet isn't welcome in his, his own town and is amazed that the townspeople don't believe the things that he's saying even after he's healed some people. The chapter next moves to a commissioning of, commissioning of the disciples and Jesus tells them to go out into the world bringing only a walking stick and if while you travel you find that you are not welcome in some towns then just shake off the dust from your shoes and move on. Don't give them any more of your energy. From there in chapter 6, the death of John the Baptist is recounted. And then the disciples return to Jesus and share all they've been taught. And it's at this point that we hear today's passage. Jesus' desire to go away with his disciples, to just have some time with them when he's not being pushed and pulled, but can just be and pray and spend time with the people he cares about, the people that he's chosen to share his life with. But then the crowds follow, they push in on him, and he ends up feeding 5,000 people. But after that, he's back in the boat, once again trying to get away with his friends. Even Jesus needed some time away to be with the people who fed his soul and kept him going. Even Jesus needed to stop doing and just be with the people that he cared about. Last fall, a friend of mine, uh, Jeff Nelson, who's pastor at Redford Aldersgate United Methodist Church, asked me to have coffee with him. And so I went and met him somewhere on Telegraph for coffee, and he started telling me about uh, these online classes that he and his wife Bridget had been taking just as a way to focus in on their marriage and do some kind of self-care and, and um, just spend some time on some of those things that sometimes get in the way of being the person that you want to be. Um, he used, they used material from Brene Brown and from Don, Donald Miller um, about being healthy and shaping your priorities Um, Stuff that you don't really know when you're like 25, 
but maybe as you get older, you kind of figure out, but wouldn't it be nice to know when you were 25 and starting out in the work world? And he said to me, I'd really love to have a class um, that we would do this with some of the new young clergy who are just starting out in their um, appointments. And he said, and I've been talking with the Methodist Union, and I'm wondering if you would teach this class with me. And um, we began to make plans, and we soon added on his wife, Bridget, and another pastor. And we began this program last, uh, in January, where we're working together with 12 young new pastors on these things that you need to know, these things that you don't learn at workshops or at conferences, but how to really take care of yourself in the midst of a high-pressure job, how to keep yourself um, non-anxious in the midst of that, And um, it's been really great. At our April class, we did a time on relationships, and we drew a diagram where we put our most important, our critical relationships, the ones we care about, at the very center of the diagram. And then outside of that, we had concentric circles on the other people in our lives who need our attention, but maybe sometimes are pressing in on us, kind of like the crowds pressed in on Jesus. And we kept going on that and looked at who it was at the center of our circle and how were we giving them our time and our energy. And then someone, I think it was Bridget, quoted Donald Miller and said, You are going to disappoint people no matter what. Just make sure they're the right people. Every week since Easter and worship here, we've been talking about relationships, and I have loved this sermon series. We've been reminded that it's through relationships that we usher in the kingdom of God. We have discussed the importance of family and remembered that the only definition of family that matters is yours. We've talked about how to manage broken and unhealthy relationships, and we've talked about the gift of friendship, and it's been good. And as I've listened, and as I've been part of this worship, every week that statement, you're going to disappoint people no matter what, just make sure it's the right people, has come back to me. How does it sit with you? Today, I want you to think about the relationships in your life, those ones at the core that really matter, that really matter to you. And I want you to ask yourself, how much of your time and energy do you put into them? Are they getting the best of you or what's left of you? Who in your life can you live with disappointing? And who would you do anything in your power to never disappoint again? Every time I have to go away for a night for a retreat or for a lock-in or for annual conference like this week, my son Ben is heartbroken. I hate to look at his face. I get anxious because I know it's coming whenever I have to tell him that I'm going to be gone. And I know he's disappointed and that he wants to be with me. And while this is not something I can really avoid because it's my part of my job, I've wrestled with how best to deal with his disappointment. There have been times when I've avoided it. I've not told him. And then I've heard that all of a sudden he says, hey, dad, where's mom? I know, not the best thing. <laughs> Sometimes I, I just kind of tell him right before it's going so he doesn't have to deal with all that dread leading up to it. Um, and when I'm gone, um, sometimes I call him and sometimes I, I don't because I realize it's just going to make him more upset. <sighs> but every time I go, I, when I come back, I make sure that he and I have some special time together. So often, my time with him is distracted time. 
time when we're hurrying from going to the next thing, getting things done at home, or time when I'm working or on my screens. I know that the next few years until he graduates will just fly by, and I don't want to miss that time, but so often I find myself busy, distracted, not giving him the attention he deserves. When I was in a high school drama class, I read the play Our Town, and for my final assignment, I delivered a monologue by Emily that comes at the end of the play. This play, Our Town, written by Thornton Wilder, tells the story of Emily, who dies young and is given permission to return to Earth to experience again one memorable day. Memorable day. Emily chooses her 12th birthday because she remembers what a happy day that was. But upon her return, she grows quite frustrated because she notices the indifference of those that she loves so much. She's, exp- she's eager to experience the day, to enjoy the time together, but notices that everyone else is just going through the motions as though they are just getting trying to get through the event so they can get on to what's next on their to-do list. She watches as they take each moment for granted, and in her great frustration, she tries to stop it because she can't take it. She has the wonderful opportunity to relive the day, and no one is experiencing the significant moments. People are barely even looking at each other. Emily cries out, I can't, I can't go on, it goes so fast. We don't have time to look at one another. Do any human beings ever realize life while they live it? Every, every moment. The story was written in 1938. And it's even more fitting today as technology invades our world and takes the place of human interaction as we travel from one thing to the next, as we get our work done, as we allow our work lives to invade our home lives, as we become slaves to tasks, lose track of priorities, and as quality time together becomes a family of four all sitting together in the same room on their devices, we find that those we love the most aren't the ones we're investing in. In Momentum for Life, Mike Slaughter writes that we get in trouble when we allow our work to fill the margins that are meant for our relationships. Some say this is a mistake of youth. In our youth, we discover that it's easier to focus on a task that can't scream at us and say, you aren't meeting my needs. Tasks reward us without talking back. Without realizing it, we learn to focus on tasks rather than relationships. In marriages, it begins around the time you are supposedly making a commitment of lifelong time and energy to your partner. When you're dating, you are focused and building a relationship. You're finding out what pleases the other person. You explore what the other person likes and dislikes, and you listen to each other's deepest needs. Then you become engaged. At that point, you no longer focus on the relationship. You center on planning the wedding, a task that begins to swallow up valuable energy formerly vested in relationships. It becomes doing chores and making arrangements, and oftentimes one partner becomes more engaged in the task than the other, which can be a point of frustration on both sides. Then you get married. Sometimes, as was the case with my husband, Mike and I, one of you may still be in school. And Mike was finishing up at Garrett in Illinois, and I was home in Michigan in my first appointment. We saw each other very little, but we knew that that would just be for one year. And after that, we'd be home, and we would have all kinds of time for each other. But then... He 
was also appointed to a large church as an associate. We were serving in two large churches as associates. We both found ourselves immersed in our work, overstretching ourselves and working maybe even harder than necessary to prove ourselves and that we could succeed and work at the level of the other pastors on staff, each of whom had been in ministry since before we were born. We easily worked seven days a week and saw very little of each other. We really could have benefited from the class that we're, I'm doing now. <laughs> when we finally got into a rhythm of making time for each other by both becoming um, solo pastors at smaller churches, we found ourselves pregnant and our focus swiftly changed. We were now managing our churches and being the best parents in the whole world. It's at this point that it's very easy to find yourself in relationship postponement. And it becomes the way you function. Unless you are intentional about being together, talking to one another, focusing on your relationship, the things you'd like to work on in your relationship are put on the back burner. And that goes with all relationships, not just marriage. How many are familiar with the five love languages? I talk about them a lot. (laughs) We've had several classes. In fact, um, there was just recently a parents of teens class um, that took the five love languages. Um, We've done this in the marriage group. The parent circle has done it. And um, a couple weeks ago, we actually did it in in youth group. Um, The five love, love languages is a book by Gary Chapman, and it talks about how each of us has a way of feeling loved. There are five of them. Words of affirmation. You know that you're loved when you receive words of affirmation. Quality time, when you have quality time with someone, then you know that you're feeling loved. Gifts, if you give gifts to someone, uh, this is, this is, then they really feel loved. Physical touch, acts of service. It's a really powerful thing. I do it with every couple that I marry. I have them read it because it's a great tool to remember in those times when sometimes you're having distance. If you start speaking each other's language, it draws you closer. Now, my gift... I don't know, my love language is gifts. And I will tell you that when we took it with the youth, not one of them came out with gifts, which is kind of surprising. Although I think that also happened when we did it in marriage group. It's just me. (laughs) In fact, for my 40th birthday, the staff surprised me with a party and, and I got all kinds of gifts. And I was just overwhelmed. But they said, we know your love language is gifts. And so they loved me and I felt very loved. You can get online, Google um, five love languages test, and and just take a little inventory and find out what your love language is. Um, I did this with my kids back when the, the, because I couldn't attend this parent class for teenagers, and so I decided I was just going to give it to my kids, and it was very interesting to have them do it. My daughter Allison went through, and she was very decisive, and she um, took the test, and she came out with quality time. My son Ben took, was taking it, and we, we kind of did it together, and every single one, he wanted to make sure that just because he liked being hugged more than me buying him things, didn't mean he wanted me to stop buying him things. <laughs> um, but he also came out with quality time. Both kids, that is their love language. And I found myself wondering, is it quality time because we're not getting enough of it? Unless you think it's just my kids, when we did it as a youth group, over 75% of the kids scored quality time as the way that they feel loved. As a result, Allison and I are spending a lot more time together. We're reading the book, The Help, together. And it's the first time I've read out loud to her 
mean, she's almost 12 years old. First time since she was probably in second grade. And we're having these wonderful conversations as we read this book. And it's every night just for a little bit of time. But it's just, it's such a wonderful experience. And so I, I encourage you to, to have your kids, your grandkids, take this inventory and see what you can learn and how you might be able to speak their language. Because when kids know that they're loved, they have all kinds of confidence. And the other thing is, if you're in a relationship with, if you're married or in a significant relationship, take this test. Maybe for years you've been thinking that by doing things, by acts of service, you're showing your partner that you love him or her. And really, what they want is quality time. It can be really revolutionary when, when you change that up. I actually um, discovered that my parents, my in-laws, their love language was acts of service. I had never understood why they, when they would come from Iowa, they would spend this time with us, and the time that they would spend was cleaning my house, which I had already cleaned for them to come, <laughs> and doing all kinds of work and, and everything. And once I realized, oh, it's because their love language is acts of service, when they come, they get a list of things to do. Love me. The people at the center of our circle, the people that are at the core of our hearts, are gifts to us. In giving them to us, God meant for us to find joy and strength and confidence as a result of this relationship. Just like Jesus, we get to choose who are in that circle. And we get to choose how we will go through life with them. Just like Jesus, we need time with them. I don't know about you, but I don't want to go through life giving them my leftovers. I want to go through life enjoying them, learning together, challenging each other, and helping each other. I want to laugh with them and love them, and I don't want to do that at the end of the day when I'm tired and I just can't manage to put my phone down. Rabbi Harold Kushner tells about one summer day when he was sitting on the beach watching two children, a boy and a girl, playing in the sand. He writes, they were hard at work building an elaborate sandcastle by the water's edge with gates and towers and moats and internal passages. And just when they had nearly finished their project, a big wave came along and knocked it down, reducing it to a heap of wet sand. I expected the children to burst into tears, devastated by what had happened to all their hard work, but they surprised me. Instead, they ran up the shore, away from the water, laughing and holding hands, and sat down to build another castle. I realized they had taught me an important lesson. All things in our lives, all the complicated structures we spend so much time and energy creating, are built on sand. Only our relationships to other people endure. Sooner or later, that wave will come along and knock down what we have worked so hard to build up. What happen, what, when that happens, only the person who has somebody's hand to hold will be able to laugh. May you find some time today and every day to be with the people who will hold your hand and laugh with you. Give them your time and your energy, and may you experience God's joy in them and they in you. Amen.